right, are you ready for Jonah? I told someone that uh, we're going to take the scenic route through Jonah. Um, I preached once uh, on Jonah uh, when I was doing stated supply before I, right before I got here, and uh, went a little faster. And I, I was like, man, I want to slow down. Um, so, Jonah, chapter one. If you're having trouble finding Jonah, he's one of those what they call minor prophet guys. It's not because he was unimportant, but that the book is short. So, right after Obadiah. Amos, Obadiah, Jonah. Still trying to remember the way I had to memorize those in seminary. So, the minor prophets were always fun. So, all right. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. For their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. And he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we begin uh, this new book, I ask that you would continue to reveal yourself to us through the book of Jonah. Reveal the greatness of your grace. Reveal the mission that you have for us in Christ. Reveal our own struggles to us so that we may look to Christ supreme and sufficient to save us to the uttermost. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. One of my favorite bands in the late 80s, early 90s is one that you, most of you probably haven't heard of. Uh, they're called The Call. And they were a band of uh, guys, one of whom was uh, a Lutheran. And so their music, their lyrics reflected faith, but they were not a quote-unquote Christian band. You heard them on normal uh, album-oriented rock radio. And... Uh, in 1989, they were on the cover, I think it was Newsweek, uh, it was either Newsweek or Time, and picture, statement, the next U2, question mark, probably because they were a band that also expressed their faith in the midst of their songs, and this would be like the American version of U2, and unfortunately it was a thing that didn't come to pass. I lament it often. Uh, one of the songs on the album that had just been released uh, that prompted this uh, article was called You Run. And it's a song that is about a person who is running from love, who's running from the experience of guilt, who's running from life, and that's all they do. They run. That's the guy we're going to meet. A man on the run. But let us not think that it's merely about Jonah, but let's think about the fact that we tend to run and not for exercise. Our big idea this morning is that Christ sends his people to seek sinners. 
we got some very easy things as we walk through this text. Um, well, easily intellectually, but not necessarily easily existentially. And we're going to begin with this right here. God speaks. The first thing we have to recognize is God speaks. This whole book, which is not very long, begins with God speaking. Now the word of the Lord came. So what's interesting, because Jonah is found in the Minor Prophets, is that most of these books, it's a series of visions and oracles. Jonah is not a series of visions and oracles. Jonah is very different in style from the rest of the Minor Prophets. It is more history. The the telling of events that took place that are told for the purposes of prophetic ministry to illustrate something, to communicate the truth of something in a prophetic fashion. But this is all about what happened in the span of a short period of time to this person. The word of the Lord came. It's prophecy. But we recognize that Scripture, all of Scripture exists precisely because our God is a God who speaks. He is, in a sense, the God who cannot keep quiet. When I was in middle school and the three years I had to ride the bus, two of them, there was an older girl that, on our bus that a friend and I um, spent a lot of time talking to. Actually, everyone spent a lot of time talking to Trish because she was one of those people that always talked. She always had lots to say, and we used to joke that the battery in her mouth must be running low and we had to replace it. Our God is a God who has plenty to say, not in a sinful way like our my friend Trish, but in a good and holy way. He has much to speak, and He does. He is the God of love who reveals Himself as well as revealing His will to those whom He loves. And so he speaks not out of a neurotic need to hear his own voice, but he speaks out of our incredible need to hear of who he is and what he has done in Jesus Christ. And so he speaks. But this can create problems if we don't understand this properly. And there are a number of ways we can sort of misunderstand this. It creates problems if we don't get it right. For instance, if we expect... Jonah's experience for ourselves. If we expect to hear the still small voice of God, so to speak, to giving us personalized info for our day, we will be sadly disappointed. But nonetheless, some people covet the experience or supposed experience of others, especially the experience of the prophets. They want direct communication from God. They want a static communication from God. I remember reading uh, a chapter by John Piper in one of his books. I can't remember which one right now. Uh, had I not gone to New Mexico this week, I probably would have looked it up. And he's, it startled me because at the beginning he's, of this chapter, he says, God spoke to me. And he goes on and he keeps talking about how God spoke to him. And I was thinking as I'm reading this going, oh no, has, has John Piper's charismatic leanings got the better of him at this moment? And at the end, he kind of sums it up and says, God spoke to me by the Scriptures. And so, that is how God speaks to people like you and to me. 
God spoke to the average Israelite through the prophets. The average Israelite didn't have a direct line to God. God spoke to them through the prophets. The prophets would stand in his council, C-I-L, and receive his councils, S-E-L. They were privileged to be taken into the presence of God and, and with the, the holy council and the angels in a way that we can't grasp because none of us has been it, been there. But as uh, Paul talks about being brought up to the third heaven, they were brought up to the third heaven. They're in the heavenly throne room. They hear this word from God as he reveals his plans and he sends them out to communicate that plan. That is how the Israelites heard from God through His servants, the prophets. But as we see in Hebrews 1, that God, though He he spoke in those ways in former days, He has spoken to us finally in His Son, Jesus Christ. And so, we have the Word of God completed by Jesus through His earthly and then His heavenly ministry. Because the apostles wrote as a result of the heavenly ministry of Jesus, the same Spirit of Christ that we read about in, in uh, 1 Peter, who worked amongst the prophets in the Old Testament, was at work amongst the apostles to write the New Testament. And so we have the whole of the Scriptures. He spoke finally and completely in His Son, Jesus Christ. And so when He speaks to us today, as I noted, He speaks to us through the Scriptures, old and new, because they are all breathed or inspired by God. He will speak to us if we will but listen. Marriage is an expression of this. In marriage, two people speak. To one another, sometimes they don't listen. <laughs> I have confessed all too often that if the Red Sox are on TV, I tend not to listen to my wife. <laughs> don't worry, there's times she doesn't listen to me. <laughs> I'm not sure what they are yet, but I'll find out one of these days. <laughs> but not every time we speak is something that makes my heart quiver. There are many mundane conversations that take place, but occasionally there are those conversations that are rich and meaningful and make me just excited and joyful. And our relationship with God is similar to that. There are going to be times when we're reading the Scriptures and it sounds mundane and it sounds like nothing is, it feels like nothing is happening. There's no little quiver in your heart. Ooh, that's so exciting. But then there will be those moments. It's as if God is speaking directly to you through the Scriptures when you know unmistakably that He's put His finger on something in your life through His Word by His Spirit. God speaks to us as our God, as our covenant Lord, as the One who is our Father. And He expresses His presence. He expresses His authority over us. He expresses His power and His might. And we'll see all of those in this little book of Jonah. We'll see that God is present. We'll see that God is authority. And we're going to see that God has power to accomplish all things. 
But first we have to recognize that God's word to Jonah upset Jonah's apple cart. It wasn't that he had a wonderful plan for Jonah's life. One that Jonah would enjoy thoroughly. But he messed up Jonah's life, so to speak. And sometimes God upsets your apple cart. Sometimes when God speaks, it is to disrupt your life because your life is going in the wrong direction. And He loves you enough to do that. God is our God who speaks to reveal Himself and His will in the midst of our circumstances, and I should add, by the Scriptures. So first, God speaks. The second thing I want us to, to keep in mind as we look at this, these three verses are that God sends messengers to sinners. Yes, indeed, God sends, present tense, messengers to sinners. You see, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, a particular man, the son of Amittai. And as we saw from that reading from 2 Kings, he was a prophet during the reign of Jeroboam II. And so he lived uh, from Galilee. He lived in Galilee. That's where the town he was uh, from was. But he spoke to the northern kingdom and he spoke about the expansion of the northern kingdom back to their original borders. It was going to be a time of prosperity and a time of blessing. And what Jonah, the son of Amittai, said came to pass despite the fact that Jeroboam was himself a wicked king. God had mercy upon the northern kingdom in restoring prosperity and power during his reign, despite the wickedness of their king. That should remind us a little of God's grace. But the word that came to Jonah was not one that he wanted to hear. It was not one of self-aggrandizement. It was not one that originated from himself precisely because Jonah didn't want to do it. He's told, arise, get up. In other words, go to Nineveh, that great city. The word of the Lord that came to him was that he was going to go on a journey to a place called Nineveh. Now, I suspect he's like one of my children. Anytime we talk about doing a road trip, like our recent uh, expedition to New Mexico, they don't want to go. (laughs) There is resistance that takes place in their heart. And there is going to be resistance that takes place in the heart of Jonah. Nineveh. You can't understand this unless you understand what Nineveh was. It was built, as we see in Genesis 10, by the great warrior Nimrod. It says there in Genesis 10, he went into Assyria, speaking anachronistically, the land that would become Assyria, he went there and built Nineveh and a number of other cities. And so Nineveh was actually one of the founding cities of the Assyrian Empire. And it was a great city in the sense that it was rather large and its district was rather large. It was not the capital of Assyria at this particular point in time. Now, when Sennacherib came into power shortly thereafter, he would actually make Nineveh 
to be the capital city. So it's, it's interesting that God sends um, his prophet not to the capital, but to another prominent city in the life of Assyria. Now, at this point in time, Assyria was weakened. Previously, it had conquered Syria. It's easy to get those two places confused, Assyria and Syria. Syria was a neighbor of the northern kingdom and was often in conflict with the northern kingdom, Israel. And so the good news was that Assyria had beat up on Syria so that Syria couldn't beat up on Israel anymore. Okay, the bully, the bigger, badder bully came into town and took care of the guy who was making a mess of it. We all, I think, have had that experience where we wished that a bigger bully would come and take care of the guy who made our life miserable. Now, normally, Assyria would have continued farther south, but Assyria had problems. There was a famine. There were insurrections within their own borders, and now they had a neighbor to their own north that was causing some trouble for them, and so Assyria got preoccupied before they could get to Israel. And that, brothers and sisters, is the reason why Israel was able to expand their borders, because Assyria was busy and Syria was weak. But this reminds us, or ought to remind us, that the nations are not irrelevant to God. But rather, uh, you know, He's not just got a plan for His people. In that point it was, it was Israel and now it's the church. But His plans include the nations that they live in and the nations that are around them. That God's providence includes all of those things as well. We see that doctrine that we've talked about before of concurrence where uh, more than one person wills the same thing but for different reasons. For instance, God uses nations in the life of His people for good purposes. One example, I would think, would be colonialism. Don't get me wrong. Colonialism was pretty bad. Okay? A lot of atrocities took place in the name of colonialism, whether it was in Africa, here in, in what became later the United States, India, other parts of the world. But God used colonialism. His purpose was good to bring the gospel to those places. But the wills of the nations were not good because they sought to oppress others. And so God's purpose was good where man's purpose was often sinful. And so it is with Assyria. Syria has some sinful designs in its heart, but God is going to use Assyria to accomplish His good purposes. So we see in Ephesians 1, to kind of illustrate this, and he put all things under Christ's feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And so Christ is the king of all things, and he rules over all things 
for the good of his church. And so if you're tempted to think that Putin or Trump or whomever is in power in this world, they're not. Ultimately, it's Jesus. And ultimately, he has plans for his people that he's going to accomplish even if we don't understand what they are at a given moment. And so he's called to go to Nineveh, but he's not going on a vacation. This is not a pleasure cruise like our New Mexican expedition this past week or Marty and Judy going to Europe or the Philbricks going to Alaska. It's not fun like that. Call out against it. For their evil has come up before me. He's being sent to raise his voice in the midst of Nineveh and tell them how bad they are. Yeah, sign me up for that one, God. That's what he wants Jonah to do. In a sense, this language is intended to echo the language of Genesis 18 with regard to Sodom and Gomorrah. Because like Sodom and Gomorrah, Nineveh has been racking up sins at a reckless pace. They were hot for the pursuit of sin. Now, different sin than Sodom and Gomorrah because they were a brutal totalitarian form of government that was based on the worship of false gods, but still racking up sin rather quickly, grievous and horrible sin. But what we see here is this notion we find elsewhere that God sets limits on the sins of nations. Uh, There's a sense in which He has a line in the sand and if they cross it, then judgment descends upon them. Why do I say this? First, uh, sorry, Genesis 15, for instance. God tells Abraham that his descendants are going to go into Egypt for 400 years. And he says they're going to come back in the fourth generation. And here's the reason. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. You see, God was going to give the land of the Amorites to Abraham's descendants. But God is a just God. And so when he calls the Israelites to come with war, it is a war of God's judgment. But it can't come until their sin is full. God sets limits upon the sins of nations, and when they reach that limit, He brings judgment, just as He did to Sodom and Gomorrah. And so, as Assyria was thinking about their problems, their famine, their insurrection, their competition in the north, they were likely to misunderstand these things. Jonah essentially is going to tell them, this is the judgment of the Lord upon you because you're wicked. Repent. Why is God doing this? 
Well, we have to remember that God is a missionary God. That because God is love, not only did He create out of the overflow of His love, but He also sends uh, out of the overflow of His love. That the great ground of missions is not the sovereignty of God, though that is part of it, but I think the love of God. And so, because He's a missionary God, He is intended to have a missionary people. And we see that expressed in part in the Abrahamic promise that we heard from in Genesis 12. God was going to make Abraham and his people great, so he was going to bless them so they could be a blessing to the nations. They were not to kind of keep it all to themselves, but they were to keep it, they were to give it away, so to speak, something that is ultimately fulfilled in Christ Jesus, but they were also intended to do in their own time. That's why we see in Exodus 19 that they were made to be a kingdom of priests. They were to be a kingdom of priests to the world. They were to make known the greatness of God and His mercy. God who redeemed them from slavery in Egypt. They were to be a missionary people. There was a a way for Gentiles to join Israel. That's always been God's plan. And I just had some weird moment where I couldn't speak right. That's always been his plan. And we see it coming to fruition in Jesus Christ, who is the great blessing, who is the great seed, who then sends out his people to make disciples of all nations within the great commission. Some of you who are in this room have previously responded to that call. Our congregation has five former missionaries. I think that's cool. People who have heard the call and have gone to foreign places. We have Brittany who currently is uh, our missionary to PCC. That is a good thing. We have church planters who've come from Georgia to minister here in Tucson and bring the gospel because they've heard the call of Jesus as He sent them out. It still happens. It's not just limited to the days of Jonah. Like Nineveh, Tucson is a city that is full of sin, full of injustice, and there is great gospel need. Just this week I came across the article that some of you saw on my Facebook page that ranked the worst cities in America. We were 28th. We're the worst city in Arizona. And they based this upon um, unemployment, lack of job growth, uh, crime rates, particularly property crime rates, uh, poverty. Okay, there's a lot of poverty in our city. Okay, we're way above the national averages. And that means that there is great gospel need as well as great gospel opportunity within Tucson. So yeah, I think Tucson in many ways is a great place to live. But we have some big problems too. So so those of you who just moved here, we're glad you're here. (laughs) Don't judge us by the quality of the roads. (laughs) There are many beautiful things about Tucson, but there is great gospel need. And so we see that God speaks to sinners 
through the messengers he sends, so they will know him. Thirdly, God is faithful to unfaithful people. Indeed, he is faithful to unfaithful people. Let's start with Jonah. Jonah's name means dove. We have lots of doves around here, and if if I could think of one characteristic of doves, it is how skittish doves are. Well, they're pretty dense, too. Uh, That has to do with their skittishness. But as soon as they they know you're in the area, they they flee. They fly away, and sometimes they startle you because you didn't even know they were there. They're so stupid, they'll fly away even though you're invisible to them. Uh, They're invisible to you. Doves are easily startled, and so is Jonah. Jonah's a dove. He hears the word of God, and he scatters and runs. You see, it's interesting. Moses and Jeremiah, both. We see this in Exodus 3 and 4, as well as Jeremiah 1. Both of these prophets argued with God. They said, what are you talking about? Jonah's case, I'm so young. In Moses' case, I mean, he had a long list of excuses that culminated with the idea that I'm slow of speech. I don't speak very well. Uh, send somebody else. And both of them finally realized God was not going to change his mind, but God was going to empower them to fulfill that which he called them to do. So they both went along with God's, pro- the, God's program for them and for their people. But we see here that instead, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And so when we get to good storytelling, which this is really good storytelling, one of the things is is that he uh, leaves out certain things that we might want to know and he'll tell us later. Okay, so you got to hang with the story until the end to find out why he really ran. I'm not going to tell you today. Don't look ahead. Okay. Um, but the other, one of the other things is how he structures this story. And so right there in verse 3, all the, the poetry geeks and, and literary people love this because it's, it's got structure. It begins and ends with that notion of uh, Jonah fleeing uh, to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Both of those things form the bookends of this verse. And in the middle, we have this idea of, once again, he's going to Nineveh, but he's going down. And so you have two phrases that have him going down. He's going down to Joppa. He's going down to Tarshish. And then in the middle, you have that idea of he buys his um, fare to go to Tarshish. And so one of the things as we think about that is... Tarshish, Tarshish, Tarshish. You get the idea because he keeps saying Tarshish. Tarshish is the opposite direction of Nineveh. Nineveh, inland, to the east, across the land. Tarshish. Go to the port, get on a boat, and sail to the end of the known world. You couldn't get much farther from from Nineveh than Tarshish. Even though we're not exactly sure where Tarshish is, we know from places like Second Chronicles 9 that a round trip by boat to Tarshish took three years. So this is not going down to the store. 
This is a long, hard journey that Jonah is going on to avoid the word of the Lord that comes to him. He's going to flee from the presence of the Lord. Now, he knows Psalm 139. He knows there's no way he can flee from God's Spirit. But he wants to go to a place where the Word of God is not known, where no one is going to be able to say, Hey, Jonah, I know you. Aren't you supposed to be somewhere else? He's going to become an anonymous person amongst ungodly people to avoid the call of the good God that he knows. Doesn't that sound nuts? It should. Sin makes us crazy and stupid. And this is what's happening here. He's acting crazy and stupid. But I think part of the purpose of Jonah is not just about Jonah. It's about all of Israel. Jonah's experiences are real. I mean, he experienced this. This is not a made-up story. okay? But he's meant to represent all of Israel because all of Israel was as unfaithful as Jonah even though they didn't run away to Tarshish. They were supposed to go to Nineveh in a sense and they were not doing it. He is rejecting God's Word, thereby He is rejecting God Himself. He is breaking faith, and He is hiding. He's sort of like the child who knows Dad is about to come home, and they're guilty, and they look for a bed or a closet to hide in so Dad can't find them. But of course, Dad does find them. But let's be honest. God's people still struggle with God's mission. We have so much more because we have Christ and yet we still struggle with this call to mission. And we're supposed to understand it as if we are breaking faith with God. We are often unfaithful, but we don't climb on boats. (laughs) But we still hide. So one of the questions that is inevitable in thinking about this text, if if we're going to do that, is where do we hide? What is your version of Tarshish? Is it watching sports all day? Is it shopping all day? What is it that you do when you know you've done wrong and there are no bushes to hide behind like Adam and Eve? Where do you go when you're fleeing from the presence of God? It's important to ask that question so that you can catch yourself and know what you're doing and say, God, rescue me. You see, oddly enough, Jonah is the son of Amittai. 
And it is believed that this name comes from the root of truth or faithful and most likely means Yahweh is faithful. And so, God in His providence is setting up this story where you have unfaithful Jonah contrasted with a faithful God. A Jonah who runs, who represents a people who run, and a God who follows and chases him down. And we see this most clearly, of course, in Jesus, who is faithful when the Father says, Son, go and rescue a people. And Jesus goes and He rescues His people because He is a faithful Son because He is a faithful God, because He is a faithful Redeemer, and He seeks not the righteous, but the unrighteous. He came, as He says, to seek and save the lost. And part of what this story of Jonah should teach us is that if the prophet of God can get lost... Surely I can get lost. But the same God who came and found Jonah will come and find me. And so, on one hand, there should be, uh, this should be heard and produce great humility within our hearts, but on the other hand, it should also produce great hope because of the God who, found, who came after Jonah will come after us. So that song you run is a song about many of us. And that's precisely why that song connects, I think, for a lot of people when they hear it. Jonah is a story about many of us, which is why I think it's a story that really connects. This is one of the most popular books of the Bible for a reason. Okay? It is easy for us to get lost in our unfaithfulness. However, just like that song ends on this theme of you can't escape the reach of love. You can run, but you can't hide from the reach of God's love. This story of Jonah says that people can't outrun the God of steadfast love. That He's going to pursue us. That He's going to confront us. That He's going to rescue us. And so let's listen as He reveals Himself, as He reveals His mission, as well as revealing your resistance. Hear His call to His love and to share in His faithfulness. Let's pray. Father, thank You that when we were alienated from every hope of salvation, You gave us Your Son to be our teacher, to clearly show us the way of salvation and to call us to repentance, to kindly allure us to the hope of eternal life and to be a pledge of Your paternal love. Grant that we would not reject such amazing grace offered to us, but obey You willingly from the heart. 
though the circumstances you set before us in the gospel be difficult and the cross be bitter to our flesh, may we not refuse to obey you, but present ourselves as living sacrifices. And having overcome all the hindrances of the world, may we proceed in the course of our holy calling until we are gathered into your eternal kingdom under the guidance of Jesus, the Messiah, your Son and our Lord. Amen.